Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. In this episode of Nighttime, we're going to catch up with a past guest who's been investigating the bizarre circumstances surrounding what at best is the accidental death, and at worst, the murder of the man he was named after. Since a bit of time has passed, and a whole lot has happened since part one of the series, let me remind you of what happened when we were first joined by Bernie Langell, who's been asking the question who or what killed the man I was named after his grandfather, Bertie Langell. For me, this all started with a message from a friend letting me know that a local man was sharing something fascinating in a connected thread of tweets. When I clicked the link he supplied, I found Bernie sharing the details of his grandfather, Corporal Langell's death in the series of events preceding it that could only be described as unbelievable. There were the extreme yet unexplained head wounds, There was the nurse who reportedly witnessed the doctor treating Corporal Langell, attacking him and uttering threats like, if you aren't dead yet, I'll finish you off. Of course, there was the ambulance being hit by a train. And then there were the theories that Corporal Langell's death was in some way connected to the development and storage of Agent Orange, which was happening on the Gagetown base he was stationed at. As Bernie shared his story, he agreed with many of those following along that the details seemed too strange to be true. But this was a story that's been passed down through his family since his childhood, and as such, he's always taken it as fact. But now, as an adult, Bernie's curiosity was getting the better of him, and he decided to try to learn more about his family's story. To his surprise, he could find very little to prove any of this even happened. It was an obituary and a few letters that indicated his grandmother had attempted to sue the government, but certainly not enough to connect the dots that formed this story, and that's really when I got involved. Despite having only a slightly above average ability to research historical events, I offered to assist Bernie in his investigation and offered to provide Nighttime as a platform to share what he knew of the story up to that point in time. The work we did together is what formed part one in this series. But to make a long story short, I tried hard, but I couldn't find anything to support the details of the Langell family legend either. But as it turned out, the gods of the armchair detectives smiled down on me, and I managed to connect at least one dot. Now as I mentioned, Bernie did have a few concrete pieces of evidence when we first met his granddad's obituary, and a few letters between his grandmother and the government. As it turned out, these letters made reference to a Chris Stiles. 
Bernie hadn't given the name much thought, but it caught my eye because I know a Chris Stiles. The one I know is a famous UFO investigator. And the one in the letter seemed to be a lawyer, but still, the name was unique enough, so I reached out to the UFO investigating Chris I knew and asked if he knew a Bernie Langell. To my amazement, he did. The UFO investigator moonlit as a paralegal back in the 90s. Chris confirmed the details Bernie shared were for the most part true and told me if we wanted to learn more, we needed to find what has come to be known as Larry's Folder. Larry is Bernie's uncle, the son of the now-deceased Corporal Langell. Chris explained that Larry had collected a wealth of documents and information related to the case that he carried with him in a large manila envelope. The problem, however, is that Larry had died several years ago and what little he owned was either long gone or in the custody of an ex-girlfriend of whom his and his family had long lost contact with. And that's where our episode and my involvement in the case ended originally. But as fate would have it, we weren't done. Something incredible happened. Shortly after the airing of that episode, to my surprise and shock, Bernie came in possession of Larry's folder and the wealth of documents it contained. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we'll again be joined by Bernie Langell, but now he's a changed man. Although there are still some serious questions, Bernie now knows a hell of a lot more about what happened to his granddad 50 years ago, on a snowy night, on a military base in New Brunswick. And it's all thanks to the information he found in Larry's folder. I told the story a bit in the introduction to this episode, but just remind the people listening of the importance of Larry's folder and how that fits into the story. It, it, it's sort of the holy grail of this story uh, because it seems to have the only known physical, tangible evidence uh, that anybody has ever mentioned uh, with regards to uh, either my my father and his brother's attempt to uh, hold the government accountable in the mid-90s uh, my grandmother trying to hold the government accountable in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, or the events that happened in 1968 surrounding my grandfather's death. Mm-hmm. When we talked about Larry's folder, it was almost this vague idea, and I don't think either of us ever expected to get our hands on it. Now that we're sitting here with Larry's folder, tell me, how did this happen? How did you get this? Um, yeah, well, I guess touching on the very beginning of your question there, I didn't know Larry's folder existed the last time we talked. So it was that that was news to me. Uh, you informed me of its existence via your connection with Chris Stiles uh, when we recorded the episode. Mm-hmm. So I, I had no idea that anything like this existed. So um, it, it kind of embarrassingly, it was a family member that had it uh, and uh, one that I um, don't talk to you regularly, but would have considered myself close to you is my uncle Doug actually had it. Now that said, I didn't see Doug as often as I saw my uncle Larry, or of course my father who raised me as a single father, uh, for most of my life. But, um, so at that point in time, being exposed to my uncle Larry and my father, especially my uncle Larry, who seemed to quarterback the whole thing. Um, I figured I had all the information that I could have from, just from memory, from regular conversations mm-hmm. and being told the story a repeated number of times. So uh, so in my personal investigation, I didn't bother going back to family members because I already had all of that hearsay. 
I had no idea that Larry had passed on the folder or somehow my uncle Doug ended up uh, with uh, with the with his folder. Yeah. And did Doug know the importance of it? Did he know what he had? I don't think he knew of it as Larry's folder. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the morning after your episode aired. So I think it was the morning of January 1st, 2017, or the day after, almost immediately after. Um, family members uh, saw that I had shared it on Facebook and social media and, and they listened to it and then they passed it around. And um, my uncle Doug is not on Facebook, but his wife, my aunt Huina is. And she sent me a message and said, Doug wants to talk to you. She didn't mention anything about documents or paperwork. I had no mm-hmm. idea what was going on. If anything, I thought maybe I, I struck the wrong chord or got something <laughs> wrong that needed immediate correction. And uh, knowing he was available, I raced out as soon as I could. And we had a good long conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he holds up a, a container that contained uh, this big manila envelope. And I, and I didn't look through it at that point in time. I, was, uh, I, I took the, the contents and I went home and I started reading through it. And that's when I realized that this must be Larry's folder. Wow. It wasn't called Larry's folder, obviously. Yeah, but but I went through and, uh, and, and I was speechless for multiple days after. Yeah. Now, be- before we get into the particulars of what's in there, let me just ask you, does the folder change what you know of the story? Um, uh, I re-listened to uh, the first part uh, a few times, and, and I mentioned that there's a gray area between different versions of the story. It definitely narrows down that gray area, but if anything, uh, it validates everything my family has always said. There are some minor details that I don't think change the story too much uh, in terms of um, what happened and that there was a grave injustice. Uh, in fact, I think uh, I think in having this folder, I've discovered that there's a bigger injustice at play that uh, that went than what we originally thought. Um, I do say with about 99% confidence, uh, it had nothing to do with the Agent Orange. There's there wasn't a conspiracy there. There was mm-hmm. uh, a significant uh, procedural failure on on a lot of different levels that we'll talk about. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I learned about a couple of other um, injustices that happened that led to his death. And I learned that one of the events that was probably the least believable aspect of it, the two least believable aspects of it, I'll say, uh, one became much more solidified and, and factual and the other became much more believable and I want to almost say forgivable. I, I can't think of a better word than forgivable at this mm. point, but it, it seemed a little more legitimate. Mm. Now, we'll get into what documents are in there specifically, but we, I, I knew Larry's folder to basically be a collection of everything Larry saved. So I'm, I'm expecting news clippings, basically everything related to this story. Just give me a brief overview. What type of documents are, are in here? What, what's in Larry's folder? Uh, there are some, uh, what I'll call, I guess, generic documents, things like uh, my grandfather's service records, uh, birth certificates, I believe, marriage certificates, um, and some medical records. Uh, like you said, there are newspaper clippings. Uh, and one in particular was describing, um, was the media story about the nurse coming forward and saying, like, you know, I saw a doctor striking an injured soldier saying something to the effect of, if you're not dead, I'm going to finish you off. Uh, and then there was another one with regards to the Bernard Langell Memorial Trophy that uh, had been awarded for a uh, baseball tournament either one or two years after mm-hmm. he had passed. Uh, so I had some generic stuff like that. 
then it had legal documents, uh, and I do believe that they were specific to my family's pursuit of justice in the mid-90s. Um, uh, but uh, I think the most important and surprising uh, parts that are in there come from the um, realization that there was actually two boards of inquiry that were held. The first one uh, was, uh, it sounds like they eliminated it partway through because they realized how complicated this case actually was. And now we have the documents. Uh, it looks like almost all of the documents from the second board of inquiry. I'll get back to the talk with Bernie in a few moments, as the next portion of our time together won't make for great radio. After much anticipation, it's at this point Bernie and I sat down with a magnifying glass in one hand and a coffee in the other, and began flipping through the many documents his now-deceased Uncle Larry felt worthy of archiving. As we flipped through the yellowed pages together, carefully avoiding getting coffee rings on anything, the story of Corporal Langell's mysterious death slowly transformed from a series of mysterious events to an undeniable series of tragedies right before my eyes. The various documents and photos outlining Corporal Langell's life events, like marriage papers and service records, constantly reminded me that this bizarre story happened to a regular guy in New Brunswick. The medical documents left no question about the extent of the injuries that would lead to his death, and the legal documents illustrate a tooth-and-nail fight for justice, one that, in my opinion, was lost by the Langell family. But most of all, to me, it was the documents related to an official inquiry into Corporal Langell's death that provided the most valuable information. Before we dove into the documents together, Bernie described this as a sort of holy grail he'd been hoping for. The Board of Inquiry seems to be um, uh, witness testimony from pretty much every party that was involved from beginning to end of, my, uh, uh, of the events that took place that led to my grandfather's death. As you heard Bernie describe to me, what he now knows, thanks to Larry's folder, is that the Department of Defense took the death of his grandfather very seriously. So seriously that two official inquiries were held in hopes of understanding the factors that led to his grandfather's injuries and ultimately his death. The format of this inquiry was basically a board hearing testimony from and further questioning everyone involved in the events leading up to Corporal Angel's death. As this inquiry was held only months after the death, the various statements archived in these documents provide first-hand accounts from those who were there at the time. And even better, with the testimony presented in chronological order, we can follow the events of this strange story from the point of view of everyone involved, except, of course, Corporal Langell, who sadly never had the chance to tell his version of the story. The narrative formed by these testimony will be the focus of the next segment of the episode. What will come next is the most accurate telling of the death of Corporal Langell we could provide. The story will be told by way of abridged readings from the files of the Board of Inquiry and excerpts of my discussion with Bernie Langell. Hey listeners, you know what's not smart? job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. 
But do you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash night. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes and identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job. And ZipRecruiter actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the United States. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash night. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash N-I-G-H-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash night. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The Board of Inquiry organized their report in a series of alphabetically titled annexes. As we unpack the story, you may notice some of the annexes aren't covered. Sadly, some are missing, and others I'll simply be skipping over in the interest of time or coherency. So let's get to it. As you hopefully recall from part one of this series, my guest's grandfather, Corporal Langell, was stationed at the Gagetown Military Base in military housing with his wife and children during the events of the story. We'll begin unfolding this series of events right where the Board of Inquiry did. In Annex A of the Inquiry, we hear the testimony of a Corporal Miller, a friend of Corporal Langell's who spent time with him the night he received his injuries. Corporal Miller, please describe your involvement with Corporal Langell on the night of February 8, 1968. Well, Corporal Langell and I went to the mess hall together in his car. Then later that night, he drove me home and dropped me off at about 10 after 11. Then, well, I never saw him again after that. I understand that you went to Corporal Langell's house and asked him to drive you to the canteen? That's right, sir. There was supposed to be a dart tournament, and we were both on the team. While at the mess, were you drinking? Yes. Was Corporal Langell drinking? Yes, sir. When you left the mess, was he impaired? I couldn't make a statement on that, sir, but I thought he was capable of handling the car. Was there at any point during the evening any arguments or fights that you recall? None whatsoever. When he dropped you off, did he mention going anywhere else? No, sir. Is there anything in there that surprises you and anything that changes the version of the story you've been told as a kid? The only thing that it sort of changes is the version that I heard was that my grandfather had guests over that were having drinks in their home and that he was driving them to their homes directly afterwards. Uh, But Corporal Miller's testimony shows that They actually got together at his home, then went out to the mess for additional drinks. Uh, Corporal Miller uh, testified that there was a dart tournament going on um, and that it was afterwards that that my grandfather drove him home. So so basically his story is, I showed up at his house, went and had a few drinks, and he drove me home and... That was it. Yeah, and uh, and the other thing that changes slightly is my aunt Jean 
um, was pretty insistent that my grandfather didn't have any alcohol consumed, uh, but uh, uh, Corporal Miller's testimony showed that he did have some. Mm-hmm. They asked him a direct question. They asked him, was, he, was Bernie staggeringly drunk? And his response was pretty direct and said, no, he was, he was capable of operating a motor vehicle. Next, we skip ahead to Annex K. In this section, we get an inside look at Corporal Langell and Corporal Miller's time at the mess hall via the testimony of a Corporal Henderson, one of the military friends they were drinking with that night. Corporal Henderson. Were you present in the canteen on the evening of February 8th, 1968? Yes, I was, sir. Evidence we have indicates that Corporal Langell and Corporal Miller were there from 6.30 to 11. Were you there during this time? Yes, I was. I spent time with them. Could you estimate how much Corporal Langell might have had to drink? Around three or four beer. The money situation was tight. Corporal Miller went home and got $5. The six or seven of us at the table pooled our money and purchased about $10 worth of beer. Did you see Corporal Angel and Corporal Miller leave the mess hall? Yes, I did. They left approximately between 22.30 and 22.40 hours. Were either of them, in your estimation, drunk? Not in the sense I'd say drunk. I'd say they were feeling good. Did you observe anything that would indicate that there was an argument or a fight which involved Corporal Angel? None, sir. There were no fights whatsoever. So from, from Annex A with, uh, with Corporal Miller, really the next step on the journey is uh, in Annex K, we hear from uh, a Henderson. He is, uh, I believe it's a security guard who described being at the mess hall along with your grandfather and Corporal Miller. I guess uh, having heard what you just said about Corporal Miller's statement, I, I don't think there's going to be much of a surprise in what Henderson had to say. We're really, through his testimony, the best thing is we get a glimpse inside the mess hall to see what was happening that night. Is there anything there that, that surprised you or, or changed anything? Uh, well, this didn't change anything because I, I didn't know a lot of this to begin with. Um, but uh, on these documents that you have uh, that you can see, um, unfortunately your listeners can't see, but my grandmother wrote notes beside it. And one of the questions asks Henderson, uh, could, you a- could you estimate how much Corporal Langell might have had to drink? And the answer says, around three or four beer. The money situation was a bit tight. And he describes that Corporal Miller went home and got $5, and the six or seven of the people around the table pooled the money. And my grandmother's note beside it says, Dusty, who's the first name for Corporal Miller, says Dusty couldn't drive himself to the mess as there was a blizzard, but he could leave and go home to get $5 with a question mark. And so so there's, there's a little bit of um, Henderson indicating that Corporal Miller did something that Corporal Miller didn't include in his own testimony. Mm, interesting. But that's, I, I don't think that there's much to that other than maybe Henderson had a better memory of what was going on. Yeah. And really, it seems like the Board of Inquiry were interested to talk to Henderson. Mainly, it seemed, at least to me, that they were trying to rule out that there was a fight or something would have happened there that led to the injuries he eventually sustained. Yeah, both uh, both Corporal Miller and Corporal Henderson uh, agreed on uh, the basic timeline of the amount of time that they spent at the mess hall. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Corporal Miller said that there was a dart tournament. Corporal Henderson said that it wasn't a dart tournament, but people were playing darts. I don't, I don't think there's much to be worried about there. Uh, they agreed that they went home at about the, the same time, um, but that there was no fighting, no altercations, no reason to think that there was any type of violent behavior. At this point in the story, Corporal Langell had been visited at home by a Corporal Miller. The two went to the mess hall where they drank with Corporal Henderson and several of their other military friends until sometime around 10.30 when Bernie and Corporal Miller left in Bernie's car. As Corporal Miller explained, Bernie drove him home and we can only assume from there he made his way directly to his home to his wife Annie and the kids. But this period of time remains a mystery and a source of speculation. What we do know is that sometime between dropping Corporal Miller off around 10.50pm and being found in bed by his wife gravely injured at 9am the next morning, Corporal Langell received the severe injuries that would soon kill him. The next piece of this story, despite being among the most crucial, is oddly absent from Larry's folder, that being the testimony of Corporal Langell's wife Annie. The Board of Inquiry makes several references to receiving her testimony in what should be Annex B. However, for reasons Larry may have taken to the grave, it's not included in this folder. My guest Bernie has a theory on why this crucial annex may be absent. So of all the information we have, the big gap is... What happened that night? How did your grandmother find him? Did she remember anything? You know, what do you, what do you think about that being missing? And do you have any idea why Larry wouldn't have what to me seems like crucial information in the folder? I think it's probably the piece of information that I'm most interested to know. Uh, but I think that there's a specific reason it's not there. And that came from one of the other legal documents um, in, the, in the folder, uh, in the communications. And one of the communications specifically states that they want that my uh, father and his brothers want to leave their mother out of this. The first communication uh, included verifying that if my father and brothers went, took the federal government to court, that that action or the results of that action wouldn't negatively affect their mother. Mm. And then the second communication was indicating, you know, at no point in time is anybody to reach out to their mother to to deal with this. And just knowing my family and knowing the tone of them indicating that, they would rather not pursue the action if that meant that the federal government's defense team or their own lawyers would uh, would reach out to their mother. Mm. They, were, they, they would rather just not do it. And I think that's because it was an emotional toll on her. She wasn't interested. I, I don't know the reasons behind it. Thinking about the reason these documents were accumulated, these my family accumulated these documents to hold the federal government accountable for uh, procedural failures, um, at least one count of intent to harm or kill their father. And uh, and and so they they filtered out the information that wasn't a part of that case, and I don't believe that what she might have testified 
and during her uh, part of this board of inquiry, I don't think that that would have lent any evidence to their case against the federal government. That makes sense. So, uh, so I think it was an intentional omission, just it wasn't relevant. It may have been relevant in the original case that my grandmother filed, or it might have been, uh, obviously it was um, applicable in the original two boards of inquiry because mm-hmm. it was used in both of them. But the the desired outcome from the lawsuit my family launched in the mid-90s, had it wasn't applicable to that. So I think that's why that was no longer in there. I want to take a quick break from the episode to get you all hip to the new investigative podcast from my friend Aaron of Generation Y. The format of this episode of Nighttime was heavily inspired by his new show, Framed. After this short Framed promo, we'll get back to our story. Brian Carrick was 17 years old, a student at Johnsburg High School. On December 20th, 2002, he disappeared from the face of the earth. To this day... His body has never been found. All that remains of Brian Carrick on this earth is droplets of his blood that were left behind inside and outside of a cooler, a produce cooler at Val's grocery store where we worked. Brian walks in there and never leaves again. Who sees him? What happened in the cooler? How many people know what happened in those first 15 minutes? There's three, okay? I can tell you I know there's three for certain. We've already got one on our side. Every witness says something that contradicts another witness. The problem is when you look at all of these witnesses, the conclusion is, I I don't know. We don't know what happened. We have no idea. This season on Framed, we are going to examine the case of Brian Carrick. One thing that makes this cold case unique is that it has been in and out of court for over a decade. Multiple court filings equate to more documents and information available to the public. Together, we are going to sift through those documents. This podcast's lofty goal is to find out exactly what happened in the back of that grocery store on a cold December night in 2002. We're going to solve this puzzle. Framed, an investigative story, premieres on August 21st. We'll get back to the narrative now. The Board of Inquiry picks up this story in Annex L with the testimony of the man Annie would turn to for help shortly after waking up to find her husband gravely injured in the bed next to her. Her husband's close friend, Warrant Officer Davis. With Corporal Langell's wife Annie's testimony missing from the folder, it's through Warrant Officer Davis's statements that we get a glimpse into the Langell home and hear how serious these injuries were. Warrant Officer Davis, tell the board how you came to be involved in assisting Corporal Langell on the morning of February 9th, 1968. Well, I got a phone call at about 9 a.m. from Miss Annie Langell. She said she didn't know what to do and that her husband Bernie was hurt. I told her that I'd be right down. From there, I, I picked up Sergeant Hanson and took him along with me. When we arrived at the Langell home, we went upstairs and found Bernie in bed and well 
He was bleeding from the ears and throwing up, and that was when we called the ambulance. Did you try to question Corporal Angel to see what happened? Yes, sir. He couldn't speak at all. Well, well, not intelligently, anyway. When in the home, did you notice any evidence to indicate that he fell down the cellar stairs? I didn't see blood on the stairs, but I, I did notice some blood at the bottom. Now, the next step is going to be in Annex L. In, in this part, we hear the testimony of Warrant Officer Davis, who seems to be a friend of, of your grandparents, where he's the one your grandmother turns to when she finds your grandfather injured. Yeah, he, he um, in his testimony, indicates that my grandfather worked with him. Uh, and so my grandmother called him in the morning to say, I don't know what to do. I need help. And... Uh, and it doesn't specifically state in his testimony that my grandmother had tried to call the ambulance, but my family's uh, story is that she tried to call the ambulance, she was told not to, and then she had to call other military personnel to her home to call the ambulance on her behalf. And it in, and it sounds like the first person that she called was Warrant Officer Davis. So it sounds like there was a familiarity there, either through him being a coworker or colleague or superior. Um, it, there was a familiarity there that led my grandmother to call him first. Now, in Warrant Officer Davis's testimony, he describes getting the call from Annie, showing up to help. Does Where we don't hear from your grandmother in the Board of Inquiry documents, does he have anything to say about the state of your grandfather and the state of the house when he showed up? Uh, he does. He um, uh, Actually, it's right in the very first question. Uh, question number one says, uh, and, and it doesn't describe who's asking the question, but it would be a member of the Board of Inquiry. Uh, the question asks, you did try to question Corporal Angel to see what happened? And the answer says, from uh, Warrant Officer Davis says, yes, sir. He couldn't speak at all, not intelligently anyways. The second question says, did you have any occasion to check the car? And the answer is yes. Sergeant Hansen and myself checked it. It was locked up. And it's important to note that the car was locked because my family indicated after the first episode aired that my grandfather wasn't, it, it was outside of his character to lock the vehicle. Mm. Uh, my family also uh, stated that his car was parked in the wrong spot, but of course that's not part of this testimony. Mm. Uh, After Warrant Officer Davis arrived at the Langell home, finding a distraught Mrs. Langell and Corporal Langell in need of urgent medical care, he phoned to request an ambulance just after 9 a.m. It arrived within 20-ish minutes and took about another 20 to get Corporal Langell in the vehicle. That ambulance brings us to the next stop in the Board of Inquiries review, the Canadian Forces Oromocto Hospital. When the ambulance arrived at the hospital, Corporal Angel was taken to the emergency room and put under the care of a medical officer named Captain Levesque. The Board of Inquiry spent considerable attention to the actions of Captain Levesque as some decisions he made, or rather decisions he delayed making, may have cost Corporal Langell his life. Medical Officer Levesque's handling of this gravely injured patient is analyzed in depth throughout Annex M, P, and Q. As we'll learn, Officer Levesque didn't seem too concerned about the on-site surgeon's orders to have an immediate air evacuation arranged for Corporal Langell. Uh, 
what do we what do we learn from Captain Levesque's statement? Okay, uh, I'm going to to answer that properly. I'm going to have to step back for just a moment to also say one of the things that my family reached out about after the first episode aired. They they describe a few other injustices that were anecdotal, and one of them being that when my grandfather got to the first hospital. Uh, the there was a doctor there that was ordered to uh, establish an air evacuation to have him flown to Halifax, and that doctor uh, just blatantly did not do that. This testimony validates that claim. Captain Levesque or Levesque, uh, he is the uh, medical officer who was ordered to uh, take my arrange for an air evacuation for my grandfather. He says, an IV was started and a catheter was installed within the patient's bladder, the patient being Bernie Langell. I later removed this catheter in order to examine him further. I then went to the OR and told Major Lafleche of the patient, and he, being Major Lafleche, said that he, being Bernie Langell, would have to be transferred immediately. I then went to lunch from approximately 1230 to 1300 hours. He says, upon returning, I examined the patient again. By this time, all administrative work had been completed. And then the air evac began at approximately 1400 hours, which is an hour after uh, he returned from lunch. So approximately an hour and a half after he was actually ordered to start that process. To do it immediately. So in essence, your grandfather in terrible shape, hold up, showed up at the hospital, saw Captain Levesque, who then turned to another doctor who I believe was like the surgeon, who said he needs to be air, evac- air evacuated immediately. Then he went to lunch. Yeah, he said, and his, uh, his sworn testimony says, um, have to be transferred immediately. I then went to lunch. Wow. Uh, it, uh, that was something that surprised me because when we first talked, I didn't hear anything about this. And taking the first story and comparing it to the one that's emerging now through these documents, this seems to be a big deal. And it comes up again and again in the Board of Inquiry documents is the delay for your grandfather's treatment and, and the delay to getting him to a neurosurgeon, I suppose. Yeah, it um, uh, it was, well, the, the facilities in uh, in and around the New Brunswick area that they were in uh, weren't able to handle a brain injury. They, they didn't have a neurosurgical facility within reach. So they had to try to get him to one within reach, and Halifax appeared to be the best option at the time. In Annex P, the next document is where we we hear from the doctor who recommended the immediate air evacuation, and it seems like he points a pretty cl- pretty critical finger back at Captain Levesque and his delays in in doing something about about the air evacuation. In reading the documents, uh, the, the different annexes, the different testimonies from everybody involved, uh, I identify two people that I describe as the only two working cogs in the entire machine. And this major Lafleche, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, is definitely one of them. He's very specific with the details he provides. He very specifically says not only did he instruct uh, Captain Levesque to do that work and set up the air evacuation, but he told them who to liaise with. He said, uh, 
He says here, I therefore told Captain Levesque to arrange for an air evacuation to Canadian Forces Hospital Halifax immediately. I requested that Captain Levesque liaise with Major Leduc, uh, who is the Chief of Medicine at Canadian Forces Hospital Ormocto. So he gave very specific instructions as to not only that Captain Levesque should take action, but he told them specifically who to meet with to make sure that these actions were done properly. And Captain Levesque's uh, response was to go to lunch. And it seems like the closest we get to any justice for those delays or negligence or however you want to put it is in the next uh, section of the inquiry. It seems like the prior doctor, they just pull him back up and ask him some pretty tough questions. Does he explain what caused his delay, why he didn't work on Major LaFletch's um, recommendation? His flimsy excuse seems to be that despite the fact that he was conversing with uh, Captain uh, or Major LaFleche, was that uh, he didn't think Major LaFleche was talking to him or telling him to do it. Uh, question number two uh, states, in view of Major LaFleche's evidence and your previous evidence that after your discussion with him, you took no action to arrange an air evacuation, but instead went to dinner, do you have any statement or comment to make to that, make to the board? And the answer was, what I understood in the OR was that the patient had to be evacuated. That was all. It didn't imply me personally that I had to do the paperwork personally. I don't have any idea of what to do. And that answer was despite the fact that uh, Major LaFleche told him who to contact to know what to do. And yes, there, that uh, immediately afterwards was a series of uh, uh, other challenging questions. But the, the point of it was uh, he didn't have a very good reason. Seems like a case of um, there's like a memes that go around where it's like, it's not my job. It'll show like somebody painting, you know, a street line and there's a piece of garbage and they paint the line around it. I've, that's the kind of the vibe I'm getting from from him. Yeah, it, it's it, that's exactly it. He's just, uh, for lack of a better word, lazy or stupid or both. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We'll now start moving the story beyond Captain Levesque's questionable handling of this air evacuation. But first, let me again recap what we just heard. After arriving to the hospital shortly after 10 a.m., it was deemed necessary to aerovac Corporal Langell to the nearest major hospital in Halifax. For reasons that likely cost Officer Levesque some sleepless nights, a highly agitated Bernie Langell wouldn't board a plane to Halifax until nearly 6 p.m., almost eight hours later. The Board of Inquiry next focused its attention on those involved in the air evacuation of Corporal Langell from the Canadian Forces Oromocto Hospital to the hospital in Halifax. I mentioned previously that in the original version of this story that had been passed down through the Langell family, a doctor on the Canadian Forces base was said to have assaulted a semi-comatose Corporal Langell while uttering threats to kill him. As we now know, thanks to Larry's folder, that assault did indeed happen, and it would happen during this part of the story, 
the Aravac. As you'll next hear, after the Board of Inquiry hears the story of a neglectfully delayed medical air evacuation, they would hear one that features physical assault from a doctor in a train versus ambulance collision. When Bernie first shared his family's story with me, these were the parts that I felt were simply too strange to be true. But as it turns out, it is true, and it all happened within the course of a few hours. We'll pick up the story in the next section of the inquiry, Annex R, which features the testimony of a medical officer whose name's been redacted. Oddly, one of the only redacted names in the more than 100 pages. My opinion? It's redacted because this is the same medical officer who would soon lose his license for attacking a gravely injured Corporal Angel. In this particular annex, we're talking about Annex R here, uh, uh, there wasn't anything specifically surprising in this one. There is there is more of his testimony later mm-hmm. that is uh, that is very surprising. Um, uh, but in this particular one, he he just briefly describes that after the the plane or the aircraft landed in Shearwater, um, uh, the Halifax-based doctor took charge of my grandfather, and uh, and this doctor. Uh, who we believe is Captain J.J. St. Germain, he uh, left the scene briefly to find a second vehicle because uh, there was two patients on the plane, my grandfather and one other. Mm. And when they landed, there was only one um, ambulance available for them at the time. Mm. And so he went to get a second ambulance. And then he describes that when he returns with the other vehicle, he sees that uh, the ambulance that my grandfather was in uh, was resting sideways or beside uh, a train and it looks like they had already collided. So this is the first testimony of uh, evidence that the uh, collision occurred between the uh, train and my uh, grandfather's ambulance. After the Board of Inquiry covers the air transport and hears a brief mention of the train accident, the Board next hears from the two other people who made the trip along with the redacted doctor and his patients, and their version of the story is much more troubling. In the following sections of the inquiry documents, we will now hear the accusations pressed against the doctor who oversaw this air transport. It starts in Annex X. This document features the statement of the nurse who claims to have seen the doctor attacking his patient. Lieutenant Trombley, please describe the events concerning Corporal Langell that you witnessed on February 9th. On February 9, I was detailed to escort Corporal Langell to Halifax on an air evacuation. We left Canadian Forces Hospital Aramokto by ambulance at about 4.30 and arrived at the airport about five minutes later. When we arrived, we then waited in the ambulance for the plane, which didn't arrive until around 5.05 p.m. While we waited in the ambulance for that half hour, the patient was semi-conscious and extremely restless. As we had no restraining equipment, the three of us could hardly prevent him from sitting up. St. Germain, who was the doctor in charge at the time, was standing at the head of the patient, 
and each time the patient tried to sit up, Saint Germain made him lie down by striking him with a closed fist to the face and the chest. All the blows were punctuated by rude and abusive language directed at the patient. Specifically, I remember him saying, If you are not dead, I will finish you off. Upon the return to the unit, I reported this incident to Captain Beaton as I felt was my duty. As we will soon see, the nurse wasn't the only one who saw these assaults. In the next section we'll cover, Annex Y, we'll hear from a Corporal Tebow, the military escort who made the trip along with the nurse and the doctor. Corporal Tebow, did you witness the behavior described by Nurse Tremblay? I was assigned as a medical escort during Corporal Langill's evacuation. While the ambulance was waiting for the plane to arrive to the airport, I saw St. Germain striking the patient about the neck and shoulders with his closed fist twice. As I was leaving the ambulance to make a phone call, I could not see it, but I heard noises which led me to believe that the struggling and striking continued. In my estimation, these blows were rather hard. Now, when I first scanned the documents contained in Larry's folder, I was amazed to see the accusations against the doctor in print. But what I never expected to see is the doctor admitting the attack and explaining himself. Much to my surprise, the doctor who previously appeared before the board explaining the ambulance ride from the hospital to the airport will again present himself to the board and now have to answer some tough questions. Perhaps what I found most surprising in the entire thing, again, this I this part of the story is what I thought was exaggerated or was added in for dramatic effect by someone in your family or something. It is true. We hear from two people who saw it, but then we also see the board turn their questioning to the Captain St. Germain or whichever, whichever rank it is. He gets a chance to answer some questions. He admits to it and goes on to justify why this attack against your grandfather happened. Did that surprise you to see... Does it change the way you feel about him and what he did? Just what are your thoughts on on him answering the questions in the way he did? Yeah, he, the it, it turns out that um, Captain Saint Germain admits that he let the anger get the best of him, and um, through whatever weak or um, what's the word I'm looking for improper thought process there's a better word for it but i can't think of it uh, but through his uh incorrect thought process felt that the best possible medical treatment was to try to strike my grandfather in the face who was suffering from a fractured skull and a brain hemorrhage at the time as a means to try to knock him unconscious to make him more controllable for the transportation and I kind of read between the lines a bit on it where it seemed like what he was getting at, what St. Germain was getting at, the doctor who assaulted your grandfather, was that the ambulance or whatever vehicle he was in didn't have the right equipment. He kept making reference to the types of restraint equipment he had. I feel it's just a case of somebody who was unhappy with the resources they have to do their job, was frustrated with it and took it out on their patient. That's kind of the way I read it. Yeah, and um, his testimony um, 
which is somewhat corroborated with other people, described that my grandfather was quite agitated and strong and difficult to control. Um, and uh, my grandmother had a little note that stated that my grandfather busted out of a straitjacket at one point in time. Uh, but then there's very there's other opinions that are pretty conflicting uh, that conflict directly with that by describing my grandfather as being only semi-conscious and mm. basically in a coma. Comatose. Yeah, I've heard uh, semi-comatose state, yet at the same time he's like fighting off the team that's helping him. And and I find I, and I fully understand that uh, that there are head injuries that can cause somebody to drift in and out of consciousness mm. and be agitated and not agitated. So I'm not I'm not doubting that. Uh, but the the simple matter of fact is is he uh, he did specifically use the language. If you are not dead, I'm going to finish you off. He admitted to it, and then in, during the board of inquiry investigation, he admitted that it, uh, part of it was uh, that he was just angry and didn't know how else to handle the situation. The physical attack on Corporal Langell by a doctor was one of several pieces of the story that I originally felt were too bizarre to be true. I had assumed the event like this would be covered in a news story, but it wasn't found in any paper I looked in. Much like the train that collided with the ambulance that Corporal Langell was put in when the plane touched down in Halifax. When we originally spoke last year, I thought the train incident was a part of the story that was added somewhere along the way for dramatic effect. Turns out, like the attack by the doctor, it happened, but it doesn't seem to be as serious as we thought. Thanks to Annex U, we'll hear from the Halifax-based doctor who was in the ambulance when it was hit, and also hear the testimony of the train driver. In the original version of the story, this was a pretty dramatic event that, that I kind of understood to be a pretty serious collision between the train and the ambulance. Through the Board of Inquiry documents and the testimony of mainly we hear from the guy driving the train, that seemed to be exact one of the components of the story that was exaggerated in the, in the original version. What, what are your thoughts about what you learned about the, the train versus ambulance collision? I have, to, I have to admit, I don't like using the word exaggerated. It's, that makes it sound like there was intent to be dishonest about the events that mm. happened. And that's not a, uh, a critique of you. I just, I, I want to be careful about it uh, because I did have um, a little bit of an eye-opening uh, sort of uh, event where uh, my father and I, we sat down to watch the opening part of the mini documentary that was filmed about this. And when, when he commented that the blood on the basement floor looked exactly like he remembers it as a kid, it made me remember that I have to be sensitive about people that lived through this. Mm. And so I, I'm not going to use the word exaggeration, but we did in the original episode talked about how uh, I used the, the, uh, the analogy of the telephone game. You know, mm. if uh, when I was in school, we did it with classmates where the first person would whisper a sentence into the second person's ear and they would try to relay it as best as they could. And by the end of the class, the sentence would be the a complete different one from where it started. Mm. And so we talked about how, my family's basically been playing that telephone game for about 50 years. And the fact that what the evidence in this folder points to actually happened, even if it's slightly different, I, I wouldn't say that it's an exaggeration. I think it was just a victim of telling the same story over the course of 50 years. And it got away from what turns out to 
it sounds like it was an honest accident combined with a little bit of negligence and not following the rules. Um, that sounds like that might have been done with the best intention of being in a hurry. Um, but the, the gist of it is, is that the ambulance driver describes that as he approached, as he was leaving Shearwater, uh, CFB Shearwater, he, he was approaching the gate and the gate had a red light. And he describes that the normal course of action is he was supposed to stop at the red light until somebody working the gate recognized him and then turn the green light on to let him go through. He did not come to a stop at the red light. He continued monitoring the red light as he slowed down, hoping that he wouldn't have to a complete, come to a complete stop because of all the extra delays that my grandfather had uh, had endured at this point in time. The, uh, the fact my grandmother couldn't call an ambulance for him in Gagetown, which led to a big delay for my grandmother to get another military personnel to come to her home to call the ambulance. Then the doctor in Gagetown who just decided not to do what he was told for at least an hour or so uh, because he decided he was going to go have lunch. Those were two big delays. So this guy had another delay uh, getting an ambulance when my grandfather finally arrived in Shearwater. So I think he was trying to make up for a little bit of lost time when he didn't stop at the red light. He focused on the red light, waiting for it to turn green as he slowed down, did not see the train coming. And at the last moment, he tried to avoid the train. And it sounds like they had what I don't want to describe it as a minor collision because I don't think there is such a thing when you're colliding with a train. But it sounds to be about as minor as it could be considering the circumstances. Uh, the, the ambulance driver describes that they they connected at the left front corner of the ambulance and uh, in the train, they both came to a stop. He describes that he was able to get out of the ambulance. Uh, I picture that it was from the driver's side door because he didn't describe having difficulties or having to try to get out of another exit. And he was able to put the ambulance's uh, four-way hazard lights on, um, which wouldn't have happened if the train actually smashed through the ambulance, destroying it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he describes uh, going to the back of the ambulance to check on both my grandfather, who was the patient in the back, and a doctor that was uh, attending in the back of the ambulance. Um, and then they describe how they, they had to transfer him quickly to another vehicle just to get him to the hospital. They did not bother waiting for another ambulance. They put him in the back of what they describe as a panel truck um, instead of an ambulance. So he wasn't, uh, uh, so they, they found any means necessary at that point to get him to the hospital. So I, I, I think the, with the amount of other things that took place that my family describes as being intentional, um, I don't think the doctor in Gagetown that delayed getting my grandfather the Aravac, I don't think he was intentionally trying to cause my grandfather more harm, but he was intentionally avoiding his duties. Um, The doctor assaulting my grandfather, that was intent. So with the amount of things that happened that were intentional, I am forgiving of my family for thinking this other part sounded like it could be intentional. I mean, with that many things happening, one more event happening, it's, it's hard to pretend that that it's hard to say like that one's a coincidence but it it sounds like this one actually was horrible but a coincidence after the delays caused by the ambulance versus train collision corporal langel would finally arrive to the helipax hospital and see a neurosurgeon just after 7 30 p.m but at this point his condition is described as being near comatose he would survive for some time but as it would turn out 
Corporal Langell would succumb to his injuries in the same hospital just three days later. So now after your grandfather basically being through hell and back, getting from his home to the first hospital to Halifax, he'd eventually succumb to his injuries. And we hear next from the doctor who treated him in Halifax up to the day he died. We don't need to go too deep into it, but in essence, what is it that that your grandfather died from? What is What, is, what do the medical reports have to say? Well, the medical examiner's report... Um which we actually talked about on the first part a little bit because it was the only actual document that I had uh, with regards to the incident. The, the, the only, I had two documents at that point in time. One was the communication from my family's lawyers to my family saying they were withdrawing their legal action. And the second document was the medical examiner's report. And so just to recap that, he described a significant number of scars, uh, bruises, uh, injuries he might have had either in combat or or others and, and scars from surgeries, but he also described um, injuries to my grandfather's orbital bones uh, and blackened eyes, which could have been a result from being struck in the face mm-hmm. by closed fists, which we now have sworn testimony happened. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, he described a, a laceration on the bridge of the nose, which in one of the annexes um, turns out that probably happened as a result of the ambulance uh, crashing into the the train and then uh, and then he describes that the cause of death was the original head injury uh, he, um, he calls it a fractured skull and brain hemorrhage is what was the eventual uh, cause of death after providing the narrative we just covered via the various testimony the board of inquiry closes the report with its official findings the whole thing wraps up with a report basically where they seem to indicate what they think happened and what factors led to your to your grandfather's death. Tell me about your thoughts on the Board of Inquiry's findings and what exactly, where exactly they point the blame or, or point um, the cause or what they feel the cause of your grandfather's death is. They, uh, at the end of their conclusion, they they determine it was an accident uh, caused by his service in the military. And that decision uh, was sort of a double-edged sword. They, they discuss how the stairway to the basement of the home in question was poorly built. The stairs were steep. They were a 45-degree angle. And at the top four stairs of that flight of stairs didn't have a handrail. Um, and, and so they, they looked at that, and that's pretty much all they needed uh, to determine that he had fallen down the stairs. There's still, I don't think that they did a lot of investigating to actually determine if that's what happened or not, but it, it is hard to argue with a reasoning for that. So they figured that uh, his death was a, was a result of an accident uh, during his service. And the plus side is my grandmother, as his widow, was able to collect a pension uh, based on that. Uh, the downside of it is that um, it meant that even with the parts of the story where agents of the federal government were intentionally trying to harm my grandfather or intentionally not doing their job or accidentally doing a bad job, uh, that meant that the federal government could not be held responsible. Um, but they they found uh, a lot of 
different things led to his death. The main thing being the accident that caused his head injury. Uh, but they, they found things such as uh, there was multiple delays that we discussed in detail. Um, the delay in getting him um, from the home to the original uh, hospital, then from the original hospital to the air evacuation, then from the plane in Shearwater to an ambulance, then from the ambulance that crashed into a train to another vehicle, and then to the hospital. Uh, all of those things as well compounded the original accident and, and led to his death. So their their findings is that the accident was a fall down the stairs. They don't look behind that beyond that. They don't, and I don't blame them for that. I uh, am leaning towards that being the original cause too. That said, there's still some mysterious things around that haven't been um, investigated or explored, or there doesn't seem to be evidence of any investigation or exploring, uh, such as uh, my grandfather's clothes being put away in the proper spot, which is something he wasn't uh, it wasn't in his character to do his car being locked, which wasn't in his character to do his car being parked in the wrong spot, which also isn't in his character to do. Um, the, the, and what would have caused the original fall? He, uh, my family has sworn to that. He doesn't, didn't have a reason to go to the basement. It was mostly empty apparently. Um, and it was kind of out of the way, uh, in terms of his normal route, when he got in the home, he would normally would have gone upstairs, but the basement was behind a closed door and off to the side. And there didn't seem to be a known reason for that. And there still doesn't seem to be at this point. Now, I hope you were able to follow the narrative I tried to lay out in the prior pieces. What you heard Bernie and I discuss is only a small portion of the documents related to the inquiry, and despite our conversation not covering everything, I think what we did discuss provides enough clarity to give the version of the story that the inquiry revealed. When Bernie and I first met over a year ago, I never thought we'd have the opportunity to read first-hand accounts of nearly everyone involved. In doing so, this story certainly changed forms for me. Initially, I suspect that Corporal Angel's death may have elements of intentional foul play and possibly a cover-up. But now, after spending time with Larry's folder, it's a different story altogether, and arguably more tragic. The death of Bernie Langell, to me, was the result of a series of systematic failures that seemed to start with the basement stairs handrail and his military housing being poorly installed. Now, after going through this story with my guest Bernie, we ended our talk with a short discussion about what comes next in his personal journey towards some of his family's darkest moments. I'll end the episode with that discussion. Where we're, where we're sitting at present day, we have the testimony of basically everybody involved in this, including some pretty candid answers by, you know, the doctor who assaulted your granddad. Did you ever expect to even get this close to finding out exactly what would happen? No. Uh, I, my original idea when, uh, as an adult, the first person outside of my immediate family to tell me the story was my great aunt Jean. Uh, and at that point in time, when she started telling me the story, she said that she at one point knew the doctor's name and that struck, that assaulted my grandfather instead of giving him medical help. Uh, she knew his name at one point in time but couldn't remember it. And so I made it my goal to learn his name. And 
I did thanks to Larry's folder. And oddly enough, it's actually because of one photocopy of a news clip, uh, of a news clipping in the folder. All of his name has been redacted from all of the uh, Board of Inquiry documents, uh, but the newspaper clipping does identify him as Captain J.J. Uh, St. Germain. I don't know what the initials JJ stand for, but that's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's that's the identifier. Now, the Board of Inquiry documents, the medical documents, the legal documents that are in Larry's folder give a pretty good picture of everything that happened. Is there anything outstanding, like any documents or any information that's not in there that you want to find? Um. You bring up a good point that my grandmother's testimony isn't in there. And I'm interested in knowing that. I don't think that there's much left to really solve about the case. It looks like they've done a pretty good job of, you know, they did two boards of inquiry about it. Um, There have been, my my grandmother uh, took legal action once and then my family took legal action a second time. So I, I think it's been looked after pretty uh, pretty thoroughly, with the exception of knowing what my grandmother's thoughts and, and comments and story was on it, especially since the, the uh, Board of Inquiry describes that she was interviewed pretty immediately after the fact in her own home. Uh, so, so I'd be interested in that. Now, what, what about throughout the documents, the medical documents, the Board of Inquiry, all this testimony... You now have the names of so many people involved. You even mentioned not knowing J.J. Uh, St. Germain's name. You now have the names of so many of them involved. Have you ever considered trying to connect with any of these people to see if they're still alive? And if so, who would you want to talk to? Um, oddly enough, I don't think I'd want to talk to Captain J.J. St. Germain. He, he told his story. It's in writing. Uh, he pretty much confessed to it. I don't think he hid anything. It was, it was kind of, um, oh, I don't think my father and brothers and immediate family that were alive at the time would describe it like this. But for me, it was kind of relieving to see him not hide behind something. Unlike the, the, the doctor that, um, pretended he didn't know he was being instructed to order the air evacuation. He, he seems to have hidden behind, um, behind something, but the, this doctor came out and said, no, I did it. I have an anger problem. I didn't know what to do. And so uh, my best option was to beat him. Um, so, so I think I've got enough information from him. Um, maybe it could get an apology from him, maybe, but other than that, um, I'd like to thank the nurse, nurse Tremblay, um, because as much as we don't have news clippings of her specifically going to the media or something and saying um, we, we don't have the origins of her telling this story uh, in her testimony. She does say that she went back to her superior um, that she had to report to and reported the incident right away. Mm-hmm. And without her having the courage to do that, my family might not have had a leg to stand on at all. Uh, so I'd like to thank her. Um, I'd also like to thank um, the individual that came to my grandmother's house to call an ambulance uh, on her behalf. Warrant Officer Davis. Yes, yeah. thank you. Um, and uh, and uh, thank him because he at least gave my grandfather a fighting chance when not many other people would. Mm-hmm. For anyone, is 
for anybody listening out there that has a connection with these people, do you have anything to say to them or anyone who worked there at the time on the military base? Do you have a message for anyone listening who may have a connection to this story? Um, there, there, there's one thing in particular. You, uh, I just briefly mentioned that my first goal was to get the doctor's name that assaulted my grandfather, which I accomplished. My next goal with it is more of a lighthearted, fun one. I want to find the Bernard Langell Memorial Trophy, um, which should still be at Gagetown somewhere. I, I work in Department of National Defense now with a, a room full of veterans who most of them have been stationed at Gagetown at one point in time. And from what they've told me, anecdotally at least, uh, they don't throw anything out. So it should be up there somewhere. I'd like to get that. So if somebody is either up there now or has been there recently and knows how I'd be able to contact somebody that would know where to find that, that would be fantastic. Even if I can't possess it, maybe I can take a photo with it. Um, then the next thing would be just to hear stories. If there are people that, uh, I know it was, it'll be 51 years ago this February, so I know there's not a good chance that a lot of them are alive or I don't think a lot of them would have mental capacity to remember everything. But if they maybe they had kids that were there that might have been 12, 13, 14 years old, like my father's age, they would they might remember something. Mm-hmm. Just any hearsay at all. Uh, they, uh, my social media accounts have been unlocked. They, 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 with a quick Google, you can usually find uh, one of my usernames and can reach out to me. And uh, I don't need hard evidence or just say, even if you've been in the area and didn't know the story, feel free to say hi. And that, that might give me another name to look up. Awesome. Anything else you want to add? This is it for me. Just to thank you. You, uh, without the, the platform you provided back at the end of 2016 and first episode into 2017, um, I don't think I'd have actually approached my own uncle to find out that this document was there. Well, I wouldn't have known to approach him for this document because I didn't know these documents existed. Yeah. And so I didn't do anything other than it just as it turned out, the episode before meeting with you was with Chris Styles. <laughs> so anyways, well, I, I'm uh, the Universal Lines. Awesome. So anyways, great. Thank, Thank you. I want to thank Bernie Langell for taking me with him on his journey into his family's dark history. Bernie, when a series of neglectful acts cut your grandfather's life short, undoubtedly the course of your family's history was changed. Your dad and his siblings lost a father, your grandmother a spouse, and you lost the opportunity to have your granddad in your life. Although today, 50 plus years removed from these events, with moderate comfort we can pour over the circumstances of your namesake's last days, but the fact that these events have left a lasting mark on your family is not lost on me and hopefully not on anyone else listening. This is a tragic, unfortunate, and disgraceful end to the life of a man who is loved by many. Now I can't speak for your granddad, but I'd like to think he's proud to see you getting to know him even if it's as a result of such a horrible event. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. I want to give a huge thank you to my pals that generously lent their voices and helped bring some of the documents from Larry's folder to life. We had Aaron from Generation Y and the incredible new investigative podcast Framed. He played the part of Corporal Miller. Jack Luna from Dark Topic 
pulled his head out of the clouds he keeps it in, and provided Warrant Officer Davis a voice. Christy Lee from the Canadian True Crime Podcast appeared as the inexplicable Australian nurse who saw the doctor attack Corporal Angel. Mike Brown from Dark Poutine blew me away with his performance as Corporal Henderson. I knew Dark Poutine was a great podcast, but I didn't know Mike had world-class acting chops. Next, Lance, my pal from Missing Maura Murray in Crawl Space, played the part of Corporal Tebow. And lastly, my fellow Oak Island fanatic Trevor Furlot did a great job providing the voice of the Board of Inquiry. Trevor hosts the popular Canadian firearm enthusiast podcast, Slam Fire Radio, and is the only person I know that makes his own ammunition. Thanks again to you all. I'm proud to have had you on my show, and even prouder to call you all my friends. And next, I want to thank the always awesome Paragon Cause for providing the music for this episode. You can hear more of them on their album Escape, available on iTunes or anywhere else worth a damn. And if anyone out there is interested in hearing more from Nighttime, please check out the Patreon group. It's a dollar a month, and you can support the show and access the supporter-exclusive feed, which provides ad-free early releases of episodes in addition to prior episodes no longer available on the main feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members of the group. David Thompson, I sincerely appreciate your support of Nighttime, and I'm glad to see you become a patron last month. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities, both on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If any of you have a story idea or some feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, keep looking around and let me know when you see something weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. showcase they call me the christchurch carver based on the international bestseller this trademark souvenir can't stop thinking about the apple usually he eats it i've got a copy can on my hands i know who you are joe i know what you do you have two days to find a copycat this is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it dark city the cleaner only wednesdays on showcase stream on stack tv